Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I'm joined by my regular co-host for the 20th Century Movie Club, Mike. Welcome back. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Thank you, sir. Excellent. Well, uh, this is going to be volume 14. Now, before we get into today's episode, Mike, I think we have some of the most dedicated listeners of any podcast. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, we have our fans uh, are absolutely fantastic. They are. And I know this because the 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 daily interaction we have with a lot of them uh, via social media. But today is a little bit different. This morning, I woke up, had my coffee, was checking my emails, and I received an email from a gentleman by the name of Brad Denton. And I'm not going to read the entire email. He just says, hi, Dana. Greetings from Liverpool, England. May I just begin by saying how much I enjoy your podcast, particularly the 20th Century Movie Club. A friend turned me on to your work recently. Uh, big shout out to Rich. And I've had a great time catching up on your output. Now, that's a wonderful way to start the email. You certainly have my attention. and I was really flattered by what he said there. But then... This email turns into an analysis of the 20th Century Movie Club. And he says here, and he writes, At the end of the most recent episode of the 20th Century Movie Club, you and Mike asked for suggestions of what to cover on forthcoming shows. And it made me think about what we haven't seen come up yet. So I did a little analysis into the 81 films that have been selected so far. And uh, as I'm sure you're already aware, the vast majority of these movies came out of the 80s and 90s. But I was surprised to see that those two decades alone are responsible for a whopping 94% of all the movies discussed in the series. Mike, did you realize it was that that skewed towards the 80s and 90s? I, I knew it was skewed. I didn't realize it was that, like, that number, that magnitude. Now, Brad doesn't just write this. He puts together a series of graphs and charts to show us exactly to the percentage of what we've covered here. So basically, it says here that 37.46% of the movies were from the 90s, 39.48% were from the 80s, see we have 3.4% were from the 70s, 1.1% were from the 50s, and 1.1% was from the 40s. I mean, this is breaking it down. <laughs> and he, he then proceeds to break this down with another graph covering the actual genres. For example, here, we've done 25 action films, three adventure films, 33 comedies, one courtroom, 16 crime films, two documentaries, nine dramas, 12 horror movies, five music-related films, seven romances, five sci-fis, 10 teens, 10 thrillers, seven war films, and two westerns. I mean, this is a breakdown. You know what? Honestly, Mike, we would have to pay a professional to get these type of analytics. Like, I was blown away by this email. I wish everybody listening could see the graphs that, that he put together because they're, you know, it, it's one thing to kind of know, okay, there's some areas that we need to, like, make some recommendations on and move to. But to then be kind of confronted with graphical representations of how narrow your focus has been it, it was really eye-opening it was really illuminating um and and these graphs are just staggeringly well put together he uh, he goes on to say that anecdotally there hasn't been a great deal of female filmmakers on the list minimal non-white talent behind or in front of the camera and an alarming absence of european cinema so here are my suggestions for ten for potential picks going forward he says, number one, films outside of the 80s and 90s. Try to make the 20th century's representation less top-heavy. See chart three. And chart three basically, again, shows us exactly each year of each movie that we recommend it. Like, and, and listeners, if you want me, I, if you want to email me at the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com, I have these charts. I've saved them as photos and I'll be happy to share them with you. He also says that we need more consideration of genre, noir, western, black exploitation, exploitation. In parentheses, he says, get some Roger Corman on there. Maybe a show on the Western or sci-fi. You get the idea. Number three, he says, classic cinema isn't always on everyone's watch list and it's often overlooked. I remember being blown away when I first watched Citizen Kane or Casablanca. And I reckon the majority of your listeners will not have seen these films. And then he said, number four, as a Brit, I'd love to see some UK and European films on there. The Wicker Man, Train Spotting, the films of Werner Herzog and Francis Trufflet. Hey, listen, he's right. Mike, he's right. 
Yep. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's, there's no defending this. He, he's a hundred percent correct. And, and we were talking about this before we started recording that, you know, you and I, I think, I think really for you and I, we had a list in these first 10, 11 episodes of films that we didn't need to rewatch. We knew them by heart. I mean, these were movies that were just, uh, they were always a part of us growing up. And we've covered those films now. And now it's time to get into a different territory in the 20th Century Movie Club. And I was mentioning to you that, for example, the picks that I made today, I have four written down. I watched all four this weekend because I didn't have a good... I remember loving these movies, but I didn't have a good handle on them. So it did cause me to have to rewatch them. So I just want to again say, Brad, thank you so much. I reached out to him. I emailed him back. I told him that I was blown away. Uh, what's great is that Mike lives in a different time zone from me, which is uh, he's two hours behind me. And I was reading this at 730 in the morning. And I knew better than to text him at 530 in the morning. But it, I had to wait till I, well, I don't know if it was around 1030 my time, but I was texting you or emailing you saying, you have to read this email. This is incredible. Yeah, no, it was, uh, again, Brad. Thank you so much for that email. Like it, it's it's amazing that you liked the show enough that you took the time to do that because you want us to be better, um, and we can be better as far as these recommendations go. You know the and I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but the lack of women in front and behind the camera, uh, the lack of POC in front of behind and behind the cameras, you know, to be sort of confronted with your your kind of privilege in, again, that graphical format was so unbelievably beneficial and useful. Um, I can't even thank you enough for sending us that email. Absolutely. Now, the theme of this episode was decided before we received this email. Actually, if I'm being honest, I got the theme completely backwards. What last week after Mike and I recorded, we said, you know, we, we put a, a you know, a, a call out to the listeners. Hey, we'd love to hear your suggestions. And I said, you know, Mike, if you come up with anything before we hear from the listeners, because that that's uh, volume 13 will will probably come out the same day that we're going to record volume 14. If you come up with a theme, I'm, I'm game. And he texted me and he said, let's do the 1960s, which we've never covered and I read the I read the text wrong. So here I am going on Twitter going, we're going to be doing films from the 70s. What are your favorite films from the 70s? And I get that text from Mike like, yeah, hey, dude, that was uh, the 1960s. And I'm like, oh, shit. Whoops. So we're going to do the 60s next week. But ironically, we've never covered a film in the 1960s. And it's not going to happen on this episode. But I guarantee you're getting at least six on volume 15. Yep, absolutely. And uh, and I think, you know, and look, we we have... Not a ton from the 70s either. So this is an important decade to cover. So I'm glad we're doing this as well. The one thing I will say to all of the listeners is unlike Dana, who watched all four of these, uh, his, you know, his three recommendations and his wild card this weekend. I watched movies from before 1970 this weekend. So I am going <laughs> with some that I'm going to be kind of recalling from memory. So I do apologize ahead of time. Most of these I've seen within the last year, but some of them uh, I may not not have and if i get some facts about the plot or that wrong i apologize ahead of time especially one that was kind of a last minute addition so i'll talk to you about more of that when i get to it but um yeah we're i'm ready to go i got i got three good 1970s recommendations excellent all right well mike the floor is yours what is your first pick for volume 14 of the 20th century movie club so speaking of dedicated fans and listeners um this was already going to be a, a pick of mine it was when I first started this show, I created a big long list and this was one of the very first movies I added to it. I just hadn't gotten around to recommending it yet. But when we put out the call for 70s movies that people, you know, what ones do they want us to talk about? A, a very dedicated listener, uh, Shane Singletary, gave us a list. I think he might have been the first one of the first people to respond. And this was actually this movie was at the very top of his list. So it was a perfect synergy. He recommended it. I already wanted to talk about it. So so my first recommendation is going to be uh, the 1973 Robert Altman film, The Long Goodbye. For those who haven't seen it, The Long Goodbye is based on a Raymond Chandler novel uh, written in 1953, starring Chandler's uh, sort of recurring detective hero, Philip Marlowe. 
the movie version makes some pretty distinct changes that are important that I actually almost think makes the movie arguably better than the novel. Number one, uh, it's not really a change, but they cast Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. Now, Elliot Gould in the 70s was about as far removed from what we sort of picture Philip Marlowe traditionally to be as you can get. But that's what makes him such perfect casting in this. And he's he's bringing his A-game to the table. Secondly, they set it in the 70s. It's, it's in the time the movie was filmed. Normally when you see a, a Chandler adaptation, it's set in the 40s or 50s because that's when he was writing. They moved this up. Altman and uh, the screenwriter Lee Brackett, who a lot of people may know as the person who did the original screenplay for Empire Strikes Back. That's not doing her career credit. She had several amazing uh, screenplays in her very long career, but most people think of her, our age, think of her from Empire Strikes Back. They moved it up to the 70s, and very, very rough plot. I don't want to talk about the plot any more than absolutely necessary. Gould plays Philip Marlowe, who is hired by a woman to find her husband, who is a, a novelist, and he has a tendency to go on alcohol and drug benders and he's disappeared for a few days and Marlowe is hired to find him. At the same time, a friend of Marlowe's is accused of killing his his own wife. And these two stories are disparate for most of the movie. I don't want to say anything else about the plot, but the way Altman and Brackett sort of update this detective story for the 70s is is one of my favorite things about it. Before I get any farther in what I like about it, Dana, have you seen The Long Goodbye? Yes, I have. It's probably been about 10 or 12 years. I I don't have a good handle on this to really give any type of analysis about it. Uh, one thing I do, and, and I think we're this is going to be a theme throughout talking about the 1970s, was just the style of filmmaking. Altman was really good at this. With movies in the 70s were very gritty and very realistic and I think, and correct me if you dis or if you disagree with me, let me know. But you know, Elliot Gould what really didn't have that leading man kind of good looks. But that didn't matter in the 1970s with a lot of different projects and films that came out. If I remember correctly about this movie, doesn't he have a cat that he feeds? Yes. Yeah. That's that's honestly the only thing I remember about it. Another thing I remember about this movie is it's a film that really takes its time, and I think that's another theme that we're going to see throughout these movies that we recommend. It's a movie that certainly takes the time and really develops the character as well. And again, I really need to see this again, but I just kind of have this memory of Elliot Gould's character just being super cool and sort of have a real laid back approach to everything. That's accurate. Um, so about the cat. So just for people who haven't seen this, one of my favorite things about this movie is the first 15 minutes or so is just Marlowe talking to his cat and himself because his cat will only eat a specific kind of food. And so he's trying to get this cat to eat another kind of food. The cat won't. So then he has to go out to the grocery store in the middle of the night and he's just complaining to himself the whole time about this ungrateful cat. And it's so unusually paced, but hilarious because Gould is literally acting opposite nobody for the first 15 minutes of this movie. And it really does a a fantastic job of kind of bringing you into this character. You almost immediately like Marlowe, just watching him interact with this cat. And that's very important as the movie goes on, because if you don't like Marlowe, the rest of the movie doesn't work. Um, You're right, Dana. It's very, uh, I would call the pacing languid. There's enough that goes on. I don't want people to think that that means it's boring. But it's, you know, and especially if you've seen any other Robert Altman movies, Altman always deliberately paced his movies. He was never in a hurry. He thought the story takes as long as the story takes to tell. The thing that I think is so brilliant about what he and Brackett did is, as I mentioned, it's set in the 70s, but they didn't bring Marlowe forward. So the way Elliot Gould plays him, he plays him as though he is a 1940s private eye in a world of the sort of tumultuous early 1970s. So he's got this very rigid set of morals. He's got this very well-defined way he views the world. And it's about sort of how that conflicts with the very modern world at the time that this movie was filmed. And I think it's a brilliant 
way to take that hard-boiled 1940s detective character and and modernize him. Just a couple of other things. You know, Elliot Gould was in the doghouse. He was blacklisted, essentially. He had been on a movie that he had... The movie fell apart because he was acting in some very, very, very unprofessional ways. The movie is called Glimpse of a Tiger. He uh, was acting erratically, almost as though he was having some sort of schizophrenic break. Some people thought it was drugs. He's always denied it. But nonetheless, he had been blacklisted for about two years. And Altman basically demanded that it was going to be Elliot Gould to do this. And so he essentially resurrected Gould's career with this movie. And, you know, I think we're all the better for it because Elliot Gould in the 70s was just spectacular for for that entire decade and you know i mean i again i know people now know him as as ross and monica's dad on friends but even that he's brilliant at i mean he's phenomenal in that series say what you will about friends but if you haven't watched elliot gould from the 70s watch it the other thing that i think is really interesting is there's basically only one song uh a song was uh written by John Williams and Johnny Mercer for this called The Long Goodbye. And almost all of the music in the movie is just various orchestrations of that same song. And as soon as you sort of catch it, it, it's a very interesting thing to do. There's just a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this movie. So I hope people, if you haven't seen it, please seek this one out. I I think you'll really like it. I have good memories about the film, but I I just don't feel like I was in the right place when I watched it. I definitely looking forward to revisiting this one. You mentioned Elliot Gould, and I I immediately think of the uh, very small performance he has in American History X, where he's just superb opposite Edward Norton in a very difficult scene to watch. Uh, The way he keeps his composure in that scene is just, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible moment. Yeah, it is. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a, been a phenomenal actor for for decades now you know and he's been kind of typecast now as he's gotten older but again even that typecasting he's his comic timing and sensibilities is top notch but it is weird to think of him as you said this will come up a lot more you know through this episode it is weird to think of him as a leading man he's not exactly you know he's not exactly chris evans in terms of looks but uh nonetheless that's what happened in the 70s we had leading men like Elliot Gould. For my first pick of the episode, I wanted to go big. I wanted to go with one of the biggest directors of all time. And I guess listeners right now are probably going, he's going to do Jaws. He's going to do Jaws. I'm not going to do Jaws. I'm, I've done an episode of Jaws. It's available on our Patreon. You're welcome to listen to it anytime you like. But I am going to do a Steven Spielberg film. I'm not going to do Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm not going to do 1941. I'm not going to do The Sugarland Express. Those are all great movies. Yes, even I like 1941. I am going to be doing 1971's Duel. Now, this is, there's a bit of an asterisk next to this because this was a ABC television movie of the week. However, this movie did eventually receive a theatrical distribution in Europe and Australia and a very limited distribution in the United States. If you've never seen Duel, the plot is as basic as it gets. Dennis Weaver plays a traveling salesman who is on his way traveling through the California desert. He has been hounded by his wife to get to this sale and get back in time for dinner to be with the kids. While he's traveling, he gets into a bit of a uh, uh, an incident with a tractor trailer. We never see the driver of the tractor trailer. At first, it seems like it's going to be a very minor, you know, the tra- tractor trailer pulls in front of him. He tries to get around it and they kind of do a little back and forth. Things slowly progress to the point where, and I don't want to go too much further into the plot, where the tractor trailer begins to stalk Dennis Weaver. And I don't want to say more than that, except that the movie was made on a $450,000 budget. Looks like it was made for $10 million. And that is a credit to Steven Spielberg. The only previous film he had done was a very small made-for-TV movie of the week. Duel is what I think really introduced a lot of people to the brilliance of Spielberg and how he frames and how he blocks and how he puts together shots. And a lot of credit to the movie also has to go to the editor, Frank Morris, who puts together just an exercise. I keep using this term, an exercise intention. The movie is one of these ones where you get about 10 minutes of introduction to who Dennis Weaver's character is. Then it gets going and it never stops. There's a scene uh, maybe 30, 40 minutes into the movie where you think that, you know, he's in the clear and everything's going to be fine. And then 
it turns into one of the most tense scenes in the film, and I don't want to say anything more than that. If you are a fan of Steven Spielberg, you will see glimpses of the techniques that he would become famous for in this movie. I cannot recommend this film enough. So, Mike, have you seen Duel? So, you remember when Dylan was on the show? Yes. And how you felt when you had to admit you hadn't seen Blues Brothers? Yes. I am feeling that exact feeling right now. I'm um, so excited to hear that, though. That means you're <laughs> going to get to see the movie. I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm very excited because obviously this is 100% going on the list to watch for episode 20. I've never seen Duel. It's it's not for lack of wanting to. Um, I mean, I've even seen Joyride, which is basically John Dahl's remake of Duel. Yeah. But I've just never gotten around to seeing Duel. And I don't know why it's like you always say, it's, it's one that just slipped through the cracks. You know, you know you're supposed to see it and stuff comes up. There's, you know, there's bad exploitation movies to watch or whatever that, that you want to watch instead. But now I, I have no excuse not to see Duel. And I am feeling the shame and embarrassment that, uh, that you had to feel when you had to admit that you hadn't seen Blues Brothers. So, you know, it's not fun. So I'm just going to have to make sure I do see this movie. Listen, so. to be fair, I think Blues Brothers is a lot. I think that's a far more well-known movie than Duel. Uh, so I think I felt far more shame than you for not seeing Blues Brothers. I think there's a lot of people that don't even know that Duel exists. Everybody knew what the Blues Brothers was, at least in our age range. So, uh, listen, I don't feel shame. I'm excited. I cannot wait to talk to you about this film after you see it. Because look, we talk about movies that get in, do their job, and get out. The original TV cut of this movie was only 74 minutes. They had to add some extra footage to bring it to an 89-minute theatrical cut. So, I mean, this thing really gets in, does its job, and it's it's intense. And it's and there's almost little to no dialogue in the film. I mean, it's a I mean, it's a man in his car being menaced by a, a big tanker truck, and that's that's it. It's a very simple premise. Well, and that's what's so amazing about how sometimes some of these directors can just take such a simple premise. You know, we talked last episode about Reservoir Dogs and how, again, that's just such a simple premise. It's a heist gone wrong. It's it's a bog standard premise, but you put it in the hands of Tarantino or you put, you know, a stock and kill type plot in duel in the hands of Spielberg and you get what they can do with that premise and then just springboard off it is just it's it's one of the reasons we watch movies, right? We love seeing shit like that. We love seeing what people can do with those kind of standard uh, plots and premises. So I'm a, I'm super excited to to not have any excuse. And I put it out there in the world now. So if we get to volume 20 and I haven't watched it, I know not only will you shame me, but every Twitter fan <laughs> and, and follower we have will shame, shame, shame me. So I have no excuse not to see it. And if I can just give a quick shout out to Jay Skipworth because Duel was based on a 1971 short story that was written in Playboy magazine. And for younger listeners out there, many people may not know that that a lot of authors would have short stories published in Playboy. And it's not the type of short story you would think when you think of Playboy. They were actually sometimes, in, in this case, very gritty and and very intense stories. Um, but it was done by Richard Matheson, and Richard Matheson wrote a book that was turned into a movie called Stir of Echoes, and I just recorded a, a podcast episode with Jay Skipworth on Stir of Echoes. So, Jay, I know you're listening. I just I thought that was an interesting little connection. Matheson, also the writer of I Am Legend, for those yep. who uh, think the name sounds familiar. Excellent. Great recommendation, Dana. Well, thank Love you. It. Thank you. All right, we're off and running. What do you got for your second pick of the episode? So, uh, you know... I have a brand. I'm, I'm a bit of the martial arts guy here, and I'm trying to break away from that because it feels weird recommending martial arts movies every episode. But when we talk the 70s, I can't not recommend this one um, it, because it arguably still stands as the greatest martial arts movie of all time. Um, and certainly the movie that opened martial arts movies uh, up to a global scale. So my next recommendation is uh, 1973's Enter the Dragon. For those who have not seen Enter the Dragon, Enter the Dragon is uh, it's Bruce Lee. 
that's really all you need to know about it. Bruce Lee had done a, a few movies in Hong Kong prior to this, but this was an international co-production between his studio in Hong Kong uh, and uh, Warner Brothers. And unfortunately, he died a month before it got released. I won't go into all the details of the, the all the things dealing with Bruce Lee's death. Karina Longworth's podcast, she does a great deep dive into, into Bruce Lee's death. This movie is as good as martial arts movies will ever get. And Bruce Lee is as amazing as a performer will ever get in a movie. It's ostensibly directed by a dude named Robert Klaus. For those of us that know martial arts movies, if we've seen Robert Klaus movies, we know that there is next to no way he did the bulk of the directing on this movie. Whether he was the man behind the camera or not, this is a Bruce Lee movie through and through. Uh, Bruce exercised complete control over the movie, over over the choreography. Basic plot is it's essentially James Bond meets Mortal Kombat. Uh, Bruce Lee plays a man named Lee, very creative there, who is uh, hired by British intelligence to uh, infiltrate a tournament on a private island. Uh, the tournament is run by a, a man who is involved in drug trafficking and arms dealing and prostitution named Han. And they want they want Lee to go in there and win the tournament and find enough information to basically bring Han down. On the way to the island, he meets an American gambler uh, named Roper, played by John Saxon, and a American martial artist by the name of Williams, played by Jim Kelly, who this was Jim Kelly's first role, but Jim Kelly went on to have a very successful black exploitation career as a martial artist. And I don't want to get any more in the plot. It's not a deep plot, but it is a fun plot. And just watching Bruce Lee in this movie is a delight. There has never been a star like him. There probably never will be again. And so I, I can't recommend this movie enough. Dana, have you seen Enter the Dragon? Oh, many, many times. And I actually, to be honest with you, knowing how much you love martial arts films, I'm actually surprised that it took, uh, we don't count episode 10, so it took 13 episodes for this one to make it onto uh, onto the show. I love this movie, and I love this movie for a lot of different reasons. And and one of the one of the big things is <laughs> one of the very first times I ever walked out of a movie was in 1995, and you mentioned Mortal Kombat. I was reluctantly dragged to the theater to go see that. I had no interest in seeing the movie. And when they got on, uh, spoilers for Mortal Kombat, everybody, when they uh, when they all get on the boat to go to uh, Shang Tsung's island, I, I looked at my buddy Travis, I said, this, is the, this isn't even the plot of Enter the Dragon. This is completely ripping off Enter the Dragon. And they go, and it's, it's literally... They ripped Mortal Kombat is a blatant ripoff of Enter the Dragon. So I got up and left like 30 minutes into the movie. That's how much I appreciated Enter the Dragon. And I was not going to be taken to the cleaners by Mortal Kombat. Uh, having said that, this movie is fantastic. The characters are great. John Saxon is great. I love the nunchuck scenes. The, you know, it's funny because when we were kids, we all had our favorite weapon of the ninja. You know, my friends, some like the swords, somebody like the throwing stars. I was always a big fan of the nunchucks. And there's a fantastic scene in this movie with nunchucks, which is worth the price of mission alone. And I'm not going to get into spoilers, but the final climactic scene is so cool to watch and had to have been very, very challenging to film. And I can't say anything more than that. Great recommendation. Great pick. And uh, it's it's really sad that he he passed away prior to this film coming out because this was the movie that made him a star around the world. Absolutely. And, and and again, he's just, he's so, I can't even describe what it's like to watch Bruce Lee in a movie. The, the way he controls the screen, uh, the way he could just move his body, it's, it's phenomenal. Just for some other things to be aware of, you know, we get a young Jackie Chan, uh, in this as a stuntman. We get a young Sammo Hung in this as a stuntman. You mentioned the last fight. Uh, I won't, again, I won't give any spoilers either other than to say that it has been uh, referenced, homaged, and ripped off more than maybe any other single martial arts fight in history. Uh, if you've seen everything from an episode of the TV show Leverage to John Wick Chapter 2 to uh, a thousand other movies, it is referenced. Um, that's how important this movie is. I mean, if you're starting, if somebody came up to me and they said, dude, 
I know you love martial arts. I want to get into martial arts. Like, what movie should I watch? 100% of the time, this is the one that I start them with. Because this is everything that a good martial arts movie should be. It has just enough plot to be interesting. The acting solid and the fighting is is next level. And then, you know, it's Bruce Lee. I mean, he just... For those who haven't seen Bruce Lee movies, he, again, he is a legend for a reason. I, I, I just, I love this movie so much. So, yeah, you're right, Dana. I, it, it's been a borderline recommendation for a lot of, a lot of weeks, but this was a perfect opportunity. I had no excuse not to recommend it this week. Now, am I pronouncing his name right when I say Bolo Young, or, or is that how it's how Bolo it's, Young? Yep. Yeah, and yep. So, so he's in this movie as well, correct? Correct. He is. Yeah. Uh, he is. He is. And he's basically this is where for those who don't know, Bolo Young is in a movie that Dana and I love immensely. Uh, Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme. He plays the villain in that. This was really where he got his start. If you've seen him in a movie, you'll recognize him immediately. He's very distinct look. And he's great in this uh, as he is in most things. He's massive. He's yeah. huge. Like he's he is he is he is like uh, 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 he's a shade below Arnold Schwarzenegger as far as muscle muscle structure goes. And he he's ma- he looks huge in Enter the Dragon. He looks younger and in better shape in Bloodsport, which came out like sixteen years later, fifteen years later. It's insane. Yep, absolutely. I have to ask you, since we're on the subject of Bruce Lee. Dragon, the Bruce Lee story came out, what, 92, 93? What did you think of that I think, film? I think it was 92. I liked it. it. It's complete and utter fiction. I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast. You know, the line from the man who shot Liberty Valance, when the truth conflicts with the legend, print the legend. Dragon is printing the legend. But as a print of the legend, I think it's a very entertaining movie. I think Jason Scott Lee does a a very good approximation of Bruce Lee. You know, one of the things that... that made Bruce Lee kind of so popular is he has such a very unique way of talking. Not just his accent, but his his cadence and his flow, and he was very eloquent. I'm very excited to see what Mike Moe does, because I, I know he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood playing Bruce Lee. I'm very excited to see how he plays him. But I liked Dragon. Is it the best movie ever made? No, and it's a complete and utter fictionalization. But the thing with Bruce Lee is, is he's really become wider or Doc Holliday, you know, he's become a folk hero. He's become a legend. Uh, there was a, a Chinese series, TV series that you can find online. I think Voodoo at least has the movie version of it where they've edited some episodes together starring uh, an actor named Danny Chan that's also a very fictionalized telling of Bruce Lee's life. But yeah, I like Dragon. If, if people are interested in more Bruce Lee, there's worse things you could watch than Dragon. What about... I, as a kid, I remember being in the video store. What about all the movies that tried to pass off their character as being Bruce Lee? Do you know the Bruce Lee knockoff films I'm talking about? We call them Bruce Bruceploitation. Okay. Yes, I absolutely want her. But you had your Bruce Lee, uh, as in L-E, your Bruce Lai, your Bruce Lowe, all sorts of them. You know, I mean, the the concept is offensive. That being said, if you can get past the concept, there are some decent movies hiding in the bruceploitation genre. Um, there's a, a an 80s and 90s uh, martial arts actor named Michael Wirth, who was in a, a handful of movies. He was in a TV show called Acapulco Heat. He's more or less retired from acting, but one of his passions is bruceploitation movies. And he's written a book on it, and he's working on a documentary on them. And he's a fascinating person to listen to about it because he he's really absorbed all of these. Um, if you're going to get into a, a bruceploitation uh, sort of bender, just know you're going to see a lot of bad movies, but there are some gems. And I will say Amazon Prime is a gold mine of bruceploitation movies. They have so many on there. Um, it's been a while since I've watched any of them, so I don't have any good recommendations to give to people. What I will do is is shout out a podcast, the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. It's a podcast out of uh, Britain. Find the episode with Michael Worth on it and uh, listen to that, and he will recommend really good ones to watch. But again, you got to get over the very offensive, very exploitative concept to begin with, because it, it definitely kind of is is ooky that there was this entire cottage industry <laughs> of movies uh, after after he died. 
Kind of like what the asylum does these days. Yeah, almost exactly. You know, that's that's almost a perfect analogy in terms of of how they do it. And every once in a while, the asylum will actually kick out a halfway decent movie, just like every once in a while, the Bruceploitation movies, you know, a, a halfway decent one would get kicked out. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think we could probably spend a lot of time talking about that. Interesting. Yeah. Because I've never seen any of those movies. I just remember all the box arts. And I remember even as a kid going, well, that's not how you spell Lee's last name. But that's thank you. Thank you for explaining that to me a little bit more. It makes it makes perfect sense now. No problem. Uh, okay, so for my second pick, this one might be a little controversial, and I was really hesitant to even include this one for a number of reasons. But just to be sure, I rewatched the movie today, and I'm recommending this movie for completely a completely different reason than I think most people would expect. This is a movie that came out in 1971. It was directed by Don Siegel, and it stars Clint Eastwood, who at that point was the biggest movie star in the world. You know, I've had Jim Hemphill on to talk about the careers of, uh, you know, the icon, iconic careers of Burt Reynolds. And Burt Reynolds really came on the scene in 72 with films like Deliverance. Hemphill will make the, the, the claim that in 1971, there was no bigger actor in the world than Clint Eastwood. The movie I'm talking about is Dirty Harry. Now, if you've never seen Dirty Harry, it tells the story as of the... Uh, Tough as nails, San Francisco police inspector Harry Callahan, who basically, uh, you know, in, in, what's the best way for me to describe that? He sort of does his own thing. He doesn't really follow proper police procedure. And that's putting it very mildly. You know, he's a very aggressive police officer who does whatever it takes to get the job done. Now, the basic plot of the film is that Inspector Callahan is on the hunt for the Scorpio killer, who is a serial killer who is assassinating people uh, throughout the city and is leaving ransom notes for the mayor. And the movie is basically uh, Inspector Callahan trying to capture the Scorpio killer. Now, the reason I am recommending this movie is because of the actor Andy Robinson, who plays the Scorpio killer. He is one of the most effective and menacing villains to be on screen in the past, well, it's almost almost 50 years. This is why I recommend the film, more so than Clint Eastwood's performance, because I was doing a lot of research today, and, and, and believe me, when you watch the movie, you'll understand that this was a super controversial movie at the time. It sparked a lot of debate over police brutality to, uh, to victims' rights, uh, even, you know, feminists were protesting the 44th Academy Awards with signs that read, Dirty Harry is a rotten pig. And I'm not saying I blame them, but I have to recommend this movie for Andy Robinson's performance because I was terrified of this guy and he is worth watching the movie just by itself. Mike, I know the answer. What do you think of Dirty Harry? So, you know, it's funny when before we started recording a little bit behind the curtain here, we had talked about that we had a couple of movies. And I said there was one that if we have if we go too deep on the wild cards, I could just throw out. But I haven't seen it in a while, but I know it well enough to talk about it. Dirty Harry was the one that I was talking about. So we didn't quite have a wild card here, but we came we came close enough. I love Dirty Harry. I uh, and a shout out to uh, again another uh, devoted listener, Carmelita Valdez McCoy. This was on her list of movies that she recommended we talk about, um, and she is one of our most dedicated listeners. Hundred percent. And, and just an absolutely delightful human being to talk to. I, I love talking to her on, on Twitter. Um, I love Dirty Harry. Now, nothing you said is incorrect, especially, you know, going 40 years on. Dirty Harry is a it's a it's a fascist wet dream, man. It, it, it's a it's a movie that, you know, not to get super political, but that, that the, you know, Blue Lives Matter folk uh, would love. And you're talking to somebody that works in law enforcement. So I know what I'm talking about when I talk about this stuff. The thing I will say about Dirty Harry is one, you're absolutely right. Andy Robinson's phenomenal. He's never better than he is in this movie. And I love him in, in a lot of Movies and TV shows. I mean, shout out to Garrick in Deep Space Nine. Or uh, not, he wasn't Garrick. I, anyway, the Trekkies are going to be mad at me, but he's <laughs> in Deep Space Nine and he's great. Um, I love him in Cobra as the douchebag that gets punched by Stallone. But he is so creepy and menacing in this. You know, he's basically based on the Zodiac Killer. And he's so creepy and menacing in this. And 
Where I think Dirty Harry gets a bit of an unfair rap isn't Dirty Harry itself. It's the Enforcer, Magnum Force, Sudden Impact, the Deadpool. It's the Dirty Harry sequels that really, as time goes on, become those very 80s sort of fascist cops are always right. They need to just kill the bad guys movies. Because the thing and I don't want to give spoilers away, but I kind of I kind of have to to make my point here a little bit, which is just to say that when Harry does what he needs to. The end of the the end of that is he's not in law enforcement anymore. And so the idea of the movie is he has to do what it what needs to be done to take out Andrew Robinson and stop Andrew Robinson, but there's consequences for that in the movie. That's immediately undone in the sequels. And so I think the sequels actually undercut a bit of the message of the movie, which is, yeah, we may be in a modern updated society that's going to require hard men to stop hard criminals, but there's going to be consequences to making those choices. Um, and again, um, I'm kind of blathering here. This is not the most articulate I've ever been about Dirty Harry, and I apologize for that. But I think there's a lot going on in this movie, and I do think it gets a bit of an unfair reputation, even though everything you said about it is 100% accurate. Uh, hopefully that made sense to everybody. Yeah, yeah, and there's you know there's another thing that you know, I, I hadn't seen the movie in five years. A long, very, very long time listeners. In fact, I believe the episode is still up. Go back to... 2014, one of the first How Was This Movie episodes I did was on the Dirty Harry franchise, which I really didn't give my opinions on the film. I just sort of charted the 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 first film and the subsequent sequels. Um, what I liked about this film, and, and you really nailed it about, you know, he he's kind of playing the man with no name from, you know, the Spaghetti Westerns. And it's what happens when you take the, the man with no name and you put him in a modern day setting. And all of a sudden, he has these rules that he has to follow, and and that's never more evident. And I'm I'm gonna it's getting into spoiler territory, but I'm gonna be very vague. About three quarters through the film, he makes it, he uh, he he arrests a suspect, okay. And but how he arrests a sub a suspect, the district attorney just basically reads him the riot act and, and explains why this guy has to be let free. And I almost texted you, you know, and said, hey, uh, uh, you know, and I know we can't do the people versus on Dirty Harry, but how accurate is that? Yeah. And, and I mean, it is to a certain extent, you know, and, and much like you, it's been probably five or six years since I've seen it. So I know the scene you're talking about, but the details. But yeah, I mean, the reality is, is we lose more cases for the violation of people's constitutional rights than we lose because we arrest the wrong guy. I'm not saying that the wrongful arrests don't happen by any means. Um, but most of the time when we lose a case, it's, you know, it's because I have to dismiss because somebody's constitutional rights were violated. And Harry doesn't live in a world that has a constitution. You know, like you said, Dana, he's basically the man with no name. What do you do if you take that guy and you put him in civilized society? How does he function? How does he operate? And then what do you do if you give him a problem that the system isn't prepared to deal with? You know, we're dealing with that a lot kind of now. Again, not to get too political. I know people get mad at us when we get political. But in terms of things like uh, school shootings and, you know, Gamergate and, and just things that our system isn't prepared to deal with. And that's kind of the whole point of Dirty Harry is if the system isn't prepared to deal with it, then you need somebody who's willing to go outside the system. It's a nightmare scenario in real life. But don't forget, this is also still just a movie. It's meant to be entertaining. It's not meant to be a documentary. And there's so many great classic lines in this movie. There's so many great classic scenes that I, I think the movie, I don't want to undersell it or uh, like oversell that it's fascist and it's upsetting because frankly, the movie's a lot of fucking fun. <laughs> I think the movie is just a blast to watch. It's a very entertaining movie because you know who knew how to make movies? Don Siegel. That guy was pretty good at what he did, so I love this recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, we, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to say I gave my PSA about the film, but the fact of the matter is, it's a very watchable film. It's a very, I mean, it's by far the best of the Dirty Harry movies. I'm sure we can agree on that. 
Oh, it's not even close. It's I I find the sequels have some merit as they go on. I actually think the Deadpool is probably uh, arguably the second best sequel, but there there's not even any any competition. They're sort of exploitative, entertaining trash. This, I will say, I think is a good movie, and I think its reputation as a good movie is 100% warranted. So what's your third pick for the episode? So I had a I had a film all picked out. I watched it this weekend after we got our miscommunication sorted out, and I really wanted to talk about it. And then we got that email from Brad, and, um, and, and this is fine. Um, because what it made me realize is a, the movie I was going to recommend was uh, a director that we already had on the list starring an actor who we already have two or three movies on the list. And it would have been a bit more of the same, but I do want to just give a shout out. Uh, the pick was going to be sorcerer from William Friedkin, which I enjoyed the hell out of. I just rewatched it this weekend for the first time in decades. And I think it's a brilliant movie. But Brad's email got me really thinking, and I can't solve all the the sort of criticisms that he had of us, but I can at least knock out a couple, which is I can knock out a European film, and I can knock out a film that has a uh, that has uh, women in front of the camera, not behind, well, sort of behind in that it's co-written, but especially women in front of the camera. So my recommendation uh, for my third pick is the 1977 Italian horror film Suspiria from Dario Argento. I will be the first to admit I am not the biggest Argento fan on the face of the earth. I'm slowly developing more of an appreciation for him uh, as I see more of his movies, but I'm still not the biggest Argento fan. What I can say, though, is I appreciate him. And this recommendation is based more on the understanding and appreciation of the cultural impact this movie had, the uh, historical precedence this movie has for how it's influenced and developed horror all the time since this movie. Um, And for the fact that it's incredibly effective. For those who haven't seen it, Suspiria stars uh, Jessica Harper as a American ballet student named Susie Banyan, who goes to a school in Germany, a ballet school in Germany uh, to study. And when she gets there, All sorts of weird shit happens. Again, I don't want to get into too many spoilers. It's part of Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, uh, which also has Inferno and Mother of Tears. But what really makes Suspiria is both the music by Argento and Goblin and the colors, which I'll talk in uh, a little more detail about. But Dana, have you seen Suspiria? I have not seen anything that Dario Argento has ever made. And some of that has been by choice. And maybe his reputation or the type of movies that he makes, kind of the way you describe Bruce Lee, the the legend might be bigger than the reality. I don't do well with certain types of horror movies. You've heard me say that before. Mm-hmm. And I have heard rumors, whispers, if you will, about the level of intensity that Dario Argento is known for. Would that be an accurate representation? I don't think so. No. Okay. I, I, I think I think it is a bit of the legend preceding the truth. I think in 1977, the intensity that Dario Argento brought to the table was something that people had never seen before in 2019. He's almost kind of quaint, which is not to diminish him. But, you know, I know that you... Uh, and Ashley did a, a deep dive podcast on Exorcist 3. And if you can get through Exorcist 3, you can 100% get through Suspiria. There is there is nothing in Suspiria that is more intense or or unsettling than Exorcist 3. So I think that uh, I think that you should give this one a shot. The one thing I will say, I was going to mention the colors. So this was the last movie that was shot, and I'm I don't understand all the text. So if there's film tech nerds out there who know all this stuff, and I, I get what I'm about to say wrong, I apologize. 
franchise. Um, this was the last movie to use the three-strip Technicolor process for colors. It was shot traditionally using what was prevalent color film, but the film was developed using a Technicolor three-strip process that, that movies like Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz had, had used, which creates an almost really sort of a flat image, but with bright, deep, colors. And so one of the things that Suspiria is most known for is just its its color palette. It It is a visual feast for the eyes. And much like Enter the Dragon and, and some of the other and, and kind of what you said with Duel, it's a very, very simple story. It's a very efficient, very simple story. It runs 98 minutes. It's not particularly deep. This is a, a perfect example of what we say when we say style over substance, but I do not mean that as a negative. The style is the substance when it comes to Suspiria. What we're watching the movie for is the style. And it's, it, you know, it is a classic of horror. We're, we're always trying, you know, because you and I both love horror movies. We're, even though you don't do well with certain ones, we're tr- always trying to get more horror movies on the list. And this is one that I think absolutely needs to be on the list. All right. Well, you know, you got me with The Exorcist 3. I said, okay. Well, you know, I I can. Although, to be fair, I think I did say that I had trouble getting through The Exorcist 3. You know, I think on a psychological level, that movie terrified the hell out of me. So (laughs) I was just starting to think about that. I'm like, you're like, well, if you could get through that. I'm like, I don't know if I want to go through that again. (laughs) I don't think I don't think this one will be, uh, you know, some of his old Jallo movies like Tenebrae and stuff like that, they're very bloody. They're very violent. This one has some scenes of, of blood and violence. Don't don't get me wrong. But and again, I'm a gore hound. I'm, you know, give me the buckets of blood and the bodily fluids and whatever else. But I really do think you can make it through this movie. I, I know I've recommended some horror movies that you've been like, Ugh. I think you can make it through this one. And I think you would uh Maybe not even like this one, but certainly appreciate what it brings to the table. This is a movie, and a shout out to longtime friends of the show over at F This Movie. This is, Argento is somebody that I've heard Patrick Bromley speak about at great lengths throughout the years. And, you know, I, I guess between the two of you, you guys are, you're inching me to, the, at least to the line of watching one of his films. I'm not ready if I'm, not sure if I'm ready to cross that line just yet. But if, let me ask you this, is this the best introduction to Argento or is there another film that I should warm myself up with well and admittedly I I am not an Argento expert you know Patrick knows Argento like the back of his hand but for me but I almost think that makes me better to recommend to you because I'm not an Argento expert and I don't love Argento I like some of his movies some of them you know I mentioned that this is part of a trilogy people are going to hate me for this I found Inferno the second one borderline unwatchable like I I did not enjoy Inferno at all I would 100% say this is the Argento movie to start with this is this is his I think his most it's his best movie it's his most mainstream movie and if you don't like this one then i think there's zero chance in you liking any argento so why even bother okay you know if you watch this one and you don't like this one then you can just write off dario argento because you're there's not another movie he's made that's going to convince you otherwise if you don't like this one and what about the remake that came out so the remake was very controversial it has mixed opinions I thought it was brilliant. Okay. I will be honest. I actually like the remake better than this one uh, because I think the remake, first of all, it's it's Luca Guadagnino of Call Me By Your Name. It's a very, very different movie. You know, we talk a lot about occasionally about remakes on this show. And, you know, uh, last episode I mentioned Evil Dead and that remake and how they kind of did something different. Suspiria really does something different. It is only the loosest basic plot outline from the Argento one. It's a lot slower. It's a lot more. uh, It is not efficient. It does not get in and get out. But at the end of the day, I still thought it was fantastic. I I absolutely loved the remake. I think they're both a great watch um, and it's hard to go wrong with either one of them. Is the remake uh, bloodier, gorier than the original? 
Yeah, uh, by the end of it. And I think the remake is certainly more upsetting. Okay. Uh, there's a lot more stuff that's upsetting. I, I would I would say if, if you're nervous, the remake is, is more uh, disturbing and upsetting. Some people may disagree with me on that, but there's a scene in the remake that involving a uh, uh, no spoilers, but involving a girl dancing and her dancing does something to another girl in the school that is far more disturbing than anything that's in Argento's original. Okay, you've you've sealed the deal on that one. I <laughs> I'm, I almost want you to tell me what happens because my imagination's going crazy. But we'll we'll leave I'll, it at that. We'll leave it at. Th- I'll tell you. I'll tell you when we're done. Sure. Recording. Okay. Okay. All right. So for my third pick, I. You know, I, I gambled a little bit here. And in some cases, that means I'm going to watch a couple movies for the first time myself. And based on my reaction to the film, I'll, you know, decides whether or not I'm going to be recommending a movie. And I actually watched two movies. I watched one last night, very excited to watch the movie. And about an hour into it, said to myself, well, I can't in good conscience recommend this movie. So the other movie that I watched, it just, it blew my mind how relevant it was today. And that is a movie that was released in 1976 and it was directed by Sidney Lumet. And the movie is called Network and Network stars, I mean, a veritable cast of who's who in the 1970s, Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a star studded cast. And I don't want to get too much into the plot of Network, except to say that the movie opens up with a longtime anchor for a fictional broadcasting company known as UBS. Now, the movie takes place in a world where NBC, CBS, ABC, the three powerhouse networks, because frankly, in the 1970s, there, there was only three networks. This was before cable television. You had three channels. Well, there's PBS as well. So you had four channels. UBS, exists in a world where these other networks also exist. So it's it's the fourth, if you will, national network. And the, the movie opens up and uh, the, the, one of our characters, Howard Beale, is a longtime anchor. Think like a Walter Cronkite type character who's hosted the the evening news for, for many, many years. And he's a, they mentioned at one point that he, he goes out to 40 million people, you know, every night. Well, his ratings are slump are slumping and they, they've decided they're going to take him off the air. He decides that he's not going to go out quietly. I don't want to say anything more than that. But the movie is really... It really starts to chart the course of when networks who for the longest time, they would do the nightly news as a service to the public. They wouldn't make any money off. In fact, these networks famously lost money. They couldn't sell a lot of advertising time during the nightly news, but it was done as a service for the public. And then what happens is slowly in the 1970s, you know, as the corporations started to take over the networks, and this isn't just in the movie, this is what really happened in reality. You know, they started to look at ways of how they could make the ratings better for these nightly news programs, how to sensationalize things. And I don't want to get into a big tangent about, you know, how the news became a for-profit business, you know, but this movie really takes an eye-opening, gives you an eye-opening look of how that process slowly starts to happen. I'm going to be intentionally vague about what happens in the film because I really want people to see it for themselves. But the performances, I mean, I mean, don't take my word for it. This movie won three of the four acting awards in the, in the film. Well, Peter Finch won Best Actor, Faye Dunaway won Best Actress, uh, and Beatrice Strait won Best Supporting Actress. This also won a Best Original Screenplay. This is a, how do I describe this? This is a 70s movie through and through. It is chock full of believable characters in realistic scenarios. There's no big action set pieces. This is a pure dialogue-driven film. Well, I don't want to say there's no action set pieces. There are some very interesting things that happen towards the end of the movie, but it is almost a historical document if you're wondering or a historical account if you're wondering what happened to news in america what happened when it became a for-profit business mike have you seen network i haven't unfortunately uh i'm actually looking over at my dvd shelf right now as we record this because i'm in my office where i've got all my movies and i see network sitting there right on my shelf taunting me going you could have watched me but i didn't um so at volume 20 uh this will absolutely be on the list of movies that i will watch between now and volume 20 one thing i will say this kind of gives us since i haven't seen network and i don't want to comment on it too much 
This gives us a chance to talk about Sidney Lumet. Can we talk about Sidney Lumet for a minute? My dude started with 12 Angry Men, ended his career with Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. In between those two movies, we get The Pawnbroker, we get Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Prince of the City, Death Trap, The Verdict. Like, holy crap. What a career Sidney Lumet had. The man was just was just amazing. And I and I feel I, I'm gonna say Network is not the only Sidney Lumet movie that I have not seen that I should have seen. I, I do kind of feel a little bit like my Lumet knowledge is maybe not as as strong as it should be, although I have seen most of his big ones. Um but I love that you recommended this because A Network is a it's a cultural icon. I mean there's a I won't say what the line is, but there's a very famous line from the movie that everybody knows, even if they don't know it's from Network. And I'm also just glad to have Sidney Lumet on our list now, because if there's a director that deserves to be on the list, it's him. You know, I really can't say more about it because uh, I was really I was really hoping you had seen the movie. If I'm being honest with you, because there's I feel like there's a there's a good chunk of stuff that we can talk about. So we're going to save that. Obviously, this one makes the episode 20 recap. I mean, I think there's no question about that. Oh, there's no question. It's the first movie I'm going to watch for episode 20. Well, what we like to do at the end of every episode is we like to let you, the listeners, know how you can find the movies that we were discussing. So I'll go first this time. My first pick of the episode was Duel. Now, Duel is not uh, streaming anywhere, but it is available to rent on all major platforms, also available to purchase. Dirty Harry is available to rent or buy on all major platforms. And then when I'm using the Just Watch app, there was a uh, a new service I hadn't heard of called Fubo. Have you heard of that, Mike? I have. It's a uh, it's a competitor to sort of the Sling TVs yeah. and the okay. uh, and so you do have to have a subscription to them, but I don't think they're very expensive, and they do have a bunch of on demand stuff that you can watch if you have a subscription. So I looked into it, and uh, Dirty Harry is currently streaming on Fubo, and I looked into it, and you know, like a lot of these streaming services, they give you you know the the seven day free trial, or in some cases a, a month free trial. This one has a lot of live TV channels, so it. It was offering a seven-day free trial, and I was getting ready to, because I wanted to watch Dirty Harry, so I was getting ready to sign up for the seven-day free trial, except to find out that it's, you know, it's not available. I watch, primarily watch everything through my Xbox console. Uh, This FOBO is available through Apple TV, through Roku, through Google Chromecast, through Amazon Fire. I have none of the above, so I didn't feel like watching Dirty Harry on my phone, which would have been the only way to watch it through Fubo, so I ultimately ended up renting the movie, but it is available on that platform. Um, if Fubo, Fubo, if I'm saying that correctly, becomes available on the Xbox or Microsoft store, I will certainly look into that. And my third pick of the episode, Network, is available right now on Netflix. So there is no excuses for anybody. It's also available to rent on all your major platforms, purchase on all your major platforms. Uh, It is a pretty nice HD transfer that's available on our HD version of the film, which is available on Netflix. So definitely recommend everyone check that one out. Mike, your choices for the episode? So before I get into my choices, I did just want to also shout out, because as, as I've mentioned before, I love physical media. If you want to see Dirty Harry, there is a Blu-ray set of the first four Dirty Harry movies on Amazon for 17 bucks, And that Dirty Harry Blu-ray is a really nicely well done Blu-ray. I, I can't speak to the the three sequels that are in it, but I they released the initial one in a book version and I've got it and it's a nice Blu-ray. So that might also be an option if, if people are interested. The Long Goodbye is currently streaming on Hoopla, which is a, I mentioned Canopy the last episode. Hoopla is another service that that ties into your local library. So if you have a library card, you very likely will be able to set up a Hoopla account and stream movies and read eBooks and stuff for free. If you don't have a library card, what's wrong with you? Libraries are awesome. Get on that. Uh, get yourself a library card. It's also available for rent and purchase on your Amazons, your Voodoo's, your iTunes. And Kino put out a very nice Blu-ray of it uh, a few years ago. 20 bucks on Amazon for Blu-ray. Enter the Dragon is streaming on Fubo, as we talked about. 
and you know that is what it is it's also available for rental and purchase everywhere you could possibly want it and then suspiria is streaming on hoopla and uh tubi uh, ad supported, so you can watch it for free on Tubi as long as you're willing to put up with a few ads. Or again, physical media, Synapse put out a beautiful 4K restoration of it a year and a half or so ago. And my advice is if you want to see Suspiria and you think it, it is at all your jam, just buy that Synapse Blu-ray because it, the movie will never look better than it looks on that Synapse Blu-ray. But if you want to just check it out, Tubi or Hoopla, it's there for you. People want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. I am also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will find our continuingly updating list of movies that we've recommended on this show uh, that hopefully will be a little more varied and diverse after the next couple of episodes because we're really going to try and change some stuff up. So hopefully it won't just be a bunch of 80s and 90s action and comedy movies. Absolutely. No, no, I listen, I agree. And, and, and kudos to Brad. And, and, and you know, I, I Brad, t- to his credit, Mike, when I he wrote me back and said that he will continue to update those charts for us on an ongoing basis. So this guy is, I mean, he's going to get a lifetime membership card to the 20th Century Movie Club. I mean, I'm, I'm getting some cards printed up that I'm going to be sending out to, to some of our most dedicated listeners that says, you know, 20th Century Movie Club member in good standing. And he's definitely getting one of those. So for sure. And and I love that he didn't do it. This wasn't a criticism. This wasn't like him telling us we suck. This was just him saying, hey, I think your show could be better. And I love that. I love that he likes what we're doing so much that he wanted to take the time to help us be better. Absolutely. 100%. And I'm looking forward to to having some more interactions with him. And, and Brad, again, I know I speak for Mike and I know I speak for Ashley because I sent her the email and she was also very, very impressed by it when we say we we appreciate this. This was a, a really nice surprise. And, uh, you know, you really got us thinking and, and thank you. So if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow the show on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. We have an Instagram page, which is at the Dana Buckler Show. You can email me with questions, comments, uh, graphs, and charts at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. And uh, one little thing I want to put out there. Um, I want to put a big thank you out to, to each and every one of our Patreon supporters. I, I know that those that were supporting the show a year ago and listeners that were support, supporting the show a year ago, uh, you know, or further back than that. I mean, Maddie Feck's been a supporter for going on three years now, and I really appreciate that. Uh, you know that it was a struggle for me to even get two or three episodes out a month. And, you know, the support that the show has received via Patreon has has really made the difference for me. It's allowed me to take an extra day off from work and focus more time on the show. And I think the results speak for themselves. Well, we're getting, you know, you know, instead of two to three a month, we're sometimes getting six to seven episodes a month. And my goal is to get two a week. That has always been the goal, to do a 20th Century Movie Club every week and to do a deep dive episode every week. And, uh, you know, if you want to become a supporter on Patreon, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash how is this movie and uh, you know every little bit of support uh, doesn't go unnoticed you know even the smallest amount means the world to me so to every one of you that has been supporting what we do here i appreciate it and uh, i'm forever grateful mike thanks for thanks for being on the show thank you my friend absolutely my name is dana buckler and thank you so much for listening